Michelle, what are you doing? Uh, this is our episode on alternative media, so I thought we could begin with some Nirvana. Yeah, but did you completely check out when we edited this? By alternative, what we're talking about is the counterculture movement of the 60s. Yeah, not 90s grunge. Dang it, Lauren! I even wore my overalls. I tied my flannel shirt around my waist. I Yeah, I can see that. I'm wearing my Doc Martens. We're going to talk about that later. Uh, guys, welcome back to the Oxford Comment. I'm Lauren. And I'm Michelle. Later this episode, I visit the Strand Bookstore in New York City and learn about the underground press newspaper movement with John McMillan, author of Smoking Typewriters. But first, we're going to kick it off with a conversation I had with Gordon Thompson, who is professor of music at Skidmore and author of Please Please Me, 60s British Pop Inside Out and our contributing Beatles blogger. It's such a feeling that my love I can hide, I can hide, I can hide. How did British music, you know, like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, um, influence the U.S. specifically? And um, then, you know, in turn, how did the U.S. influence Britain? Right. Well, part of your question uh, deals with the uh, kind of the rise of the counterculture. And uh, one interesting kind of connection we might want to make there is between the, uh, the Beatles and Bob Dylan. Uh, Bob Dylan was attracted to the Beatles early on. He heard their music and, and was really fascinated by it. But in a strange sort of way, he misheard some of their lyrics. Uh, when he heard them uh, doing I Want to Hold Your Hand, he heard this line and he said, how can they get away with saying that? And the line was, in the Beatles song, is, I, you know, they say, I can't hide, I can't hide. And he heard it as, I get high, I get high. Um, and <laughs> consequently, he, when he met them in the summer of 1964, he asked them, he says, how did you get that past the censors? And they had to explain to him that they weren't singing what he thought they were singing. But that, that conversation they had in the Delmonico Hotel in New York City in the summer of 1964 uh, really kind of informed both ways. Uh, Bob Dylan was becoming increasingly interested in taking what he'd been doing as a folk artist and adding rock and roll to it. He'd been a rock and roll musician before he'd been a folk artist, but he was now thinking, I could do this and make it work. On the other hand, he had this conversation with John Lennon and told John Lennon, basically, you need to pay attention to the words. Words count. Words have meaning. So that summer of 64 really kind of uh, presages, if you will, what's going to happen in 1965 when the Beatles increasingly take on uh, more, uh, how do we say, uh, deeper issues in their, more deeper? Yes, deeper issues in their songs. Um, and uh, Bob Dylan will add, of course, a rock band. If we talk specifically about the Beatles, what do you think, you know, their initial message was as a group? And, like, how did that change over the course of the 60s? Yeah, well, their initial message was basic, you know, boy, girl, I love you, she loves me, she loves you songs. Let's hold hands. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that would try to cover all the bases. You know, that was that was their early uh, identity. Was They are basically working within the traditional pop realm. They were copying everything from the Shirelles, Baby, It's You, to, you know, uh, to uh, Carl Perkins' Matt box blues uh, so they're you know they're kind of mixing things up there but as we get into 1965 and 66 65 with songs like or 66 you know with um, a nowhere man uh, which is a much deeper kind of examination of who the individual is um, so that by the time we get to the end of the 60s they're really kind of doing other kinds of things um, you know John Lennon trying to do kind of like on-the-spot pop journalism with the Ballad of John and Yoko, which is interesting, kind of like total circuit, because Ballad of John and Yoko is, 
essentially a broadside ballad um, done updated into a rock version uh, where John's trying to tell the story of how he's trying to get married with uh, with uh, Yoko Ono and what kind of issues the press is giving them. So it kind of really kind of transforms over the course of the 60s how their music sounds. Rolling Stones are a different issue altogether. Rolling Stones start off as a blues band, um, and uh, their manager, producer, Andrew Lou Goldham, wants them to kind of like become something else. Uh, and so there's a tug of war that makes them very successful through the mid 60s until they kind of reach this dead spot in 66 and 67, um, at which point they dump Andrew Lou Goldham and kind of go back to being a blues band, uh, which is how they then reimagine themselves. Um, Street Fighting Man, summer, I guess that's 68. Street Fighting Man uh, is uh, the Rolling Stones version of it, and then the Beatles side of that is Revolution, John Lennon. Um, Street Fighting Man is kind of like, I would say, in many ways disingenuous, because on the one hand, he's talking about violent revolution, yet he's also saying, what's a poor boy to do when he plays in a rock and roll band? That's the Rolling Stones side of it. John Lennon's side of it is kind of saying... Um, you want a revolution, okay, so show me the details. How is this actually going to work out? Um, it's a rather more analytical, uh, critical view of what was going on in 1968. So they really kind of evolved in a slightly different way. They certainly were influential on American rock and roll. Uh, American rock bands uh, clearly were imitating what the Beatles were doing in the, uh, through the 1960s. Everybody wanted to be like the Beatles, and why not? They were the most successful band on the planet. Um, they could do no wrong. Everything they came out uh, with was gold. Um, so everybody, you know, from, uh, well, you think of their bands like, you know, Sir Douglas Quintet, who came out of Texas, you know, trying to sound British. Um, lots of America, you know, Paul Revere and the Raiders uh, wanting to sound British. There was all that kind of, uh, that impulse there. Well, and a lot of the music that you've just talked to about is um, terribly political. Do, is there a specific song or a specific band from this time period that you think is, you know, the most successful in taking their politics and turning it into music? Wow, successful. I don't know. Uh, notorious. Uh, the MC5 out of Detroit uh, and the, uh, working with John Sinclair, that has to be pretty pretty political for the time. Uh, it's, it's, pre, it's punk, if you will, uh, kind of with a really hard edge. It's almost rap, um, but with a hard political edge. That's the American side of it. Uh, British side of it, you've got bands like The Nice. Uh, they do a, a version of uh, the song America out of West Side Story uh, that Leonard Bernstein tries to ban, actually successfully bans from release in the U.S. Uh, because they turn it really into a political statement about the, uh, uh, the violence that's happening in the United States in the uh, 1967-1968. Uh, the riots, um, that's all depicted in the nicest version of their image of what the United States is like. Is this the same period, do you think, when we really began to see, you know, the fight against commercialization, or is that later? I think the fight against commercialization had been around a long time. Uh, if we look at the folk movement from before that, you know, Woody Guthrie and people like that, the Weavers, um, much of that is about being anti-corporate. Uh, and it's just a matter of the point at which that can make the leap into pop music, and that happens in the 60s. Uh, although there were songs before that that were kind of along those lines. Uh, there's uh, Tennessee Early Ford's uh, 16 Tons. That's clearly anti-corporate, but it's unusual for the time. Uh, and then, yeah, I guess also there's you know tunes like Working in a Coal Mine, Working in a Coal Mine, Going Down. You know, that's... That's clearly kind of working on the anti-corporate message, too. Um, so there's elements of it in there. I think 
the counterculture is not so much about anti-corporate as I would think providing an alternative voice uh, for uh, for the public. I mean, the uh, the newspapers that sprang up uh, in that era were looking to find an alternative way to express what was going on in people's minds, especially young people's minds. In the United States, with the draft in the Vietnam War, uh, that political voice became even more important and more more agitated with a sharper edge to it. So these alternative papers uh, and the music that came along with it were certainly important. And we shouldn't forget here the alternative radio that was uh, striking up. This is the beginning of FM radio, um, and it was seen by the commercial radio networks as being unimportant. So that's where, if you get, if you will, you get alternative radio stations popping up, um, where that are broadcasting, you know, they're, they're playing entire sides of albums rather than just two minutes and 30 seconds of a pop hit. Uh, they're playing cuts that would never appear on the radio. They're entertaining conversations on the radio that uh, would never happen on, on AM radio commercial radio. Indeed, FM radio was seen as being totally non-commercial. That's totally changed now, obviously. But FM radio was a place where you found classical music and jazz stations and alternative, well, we would call them alternative rock stations. That's where you would, would hear full sides of, uh, of The Doors or The Beatles. You'd hear a full side of The Beatles' recent album, whether it's The White Album or, um, or uh, Abbey Road. Um, those, al- those radio stations really contributed to that. When you were talking about you know, alternative voices. And I know you and I have discussed previously um, that sometimes I feel like we're in the middle of almost the anti-60s where so much of what is now popular music is anything but political. It's extremely just, you know, yeah, boy and girl and hanging out and partying. What, you don't, you don't think that California girls is political? <laughs> I suppose it could be. It could be, um, yeah. So, you know, what do you think, what is our alternative voice right now? I, I don't think it's Justin Bieber. Probably not. Somebody like Radiohead is, yeah. I would think. Um, I mean, the, really, the real challenge right now is the, the, the enormous transformation that the music industry is undergoing right. um, with you know, the ability to do digital downloads. Um, that, is, that is changing dramatically both the quality of the kinds of material we hear and the, the variety of kinds of things that we hear. It's, a good, it's double-edged. Uh, clearly. Uh, on the one hand, uh, it means a lot more people have access to distributing things. On the other hand, it means that you're no longer going to be able to make money, it seems, except with a few instances, by making recordings. You're going to have to stay on the road. Well, and with an unsigned band um, that some people may have heard of, the Arcade Fire winning Best Album of the Year at yeah. the Grammys, um, it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next few years. And of course, Arcade Fire has been around for a while. Uh, you yeah. know, they're out of Montreal. Um, they've been playing. They've been kind of, and certainly college students' uh, uh, radar for uh, a long time. You know, but they're they're making it by basically having to go out there and tour continually. Um, and that's that's an interesting band because it's a big band. There's a lot of people in that band. It's, yeah. how, do you, how do you tour with that band and make any money? Um, if you're in a 12-piece band, <laughs> it, could, it gets divided up a lot smaller. Um, so you had, it becomes kind of labor of love in terms of how you're actually going to make money as a musician these days. It's almost getting back to, I guess, the way music was originally, you know, done before well, recordings. Yeah, it was. It was getting back to something what it was like in the in the forties and fifties, uh, where people did recordings as a way to advertise their concerts. Um, it was the point at which people started realizing, hey, we can make lots of money on recordings. Uh, that the corporate element came in. Now the corporate element. 
certainly uh, corporations have been around to kind of like support and make great recordings, provide studio time, studios with, you know, uh, the state-of-the-art equipment, uh, engineers who know what they're doing. Um, that was great for producing great quality recordings. But an MP3 squashes that sound. So it sounds kind of good, but if the stuff in the middle gets all mushy. The, one of the great ironies of the, of, the, of the 21st century is that we have taken a step backwards in terms of the quality of the recordings that we listen to. Vinyl and even CDs were a much higher quality recording than an MP3. And it's, it's, it's a shame that we've kind of gone backwards. I presume we'll go forwards at some point, but the quality has gone backwards. I used to write He said MP3s are mushy. Yeah, he definitely did. Gordon's great. Um, so what is up next? Um, well, as mentioned earlier, I recently went to an event at the Strand Bookstore in New York City for John McMillan's new book, Smoking Typewriters, which is all about the underground press movement in the 60s. So what you're about to hear are a few clips from the event and then some interviews I did afterwards, um, first with John McMillan, the author of the book, and then Jesse Kornbluth, who also spoke at the event. And Jesse actually uh, wrote a book on the underground press movement during the 60s. Um, he was at Harvard at the time and actually was arrested for um, selling an alternative newspaper. And he has seen the evolution of media from print to online. And he had some interesting things to say about that afterwards. Cue it up. <laughs> <laughs> Good evening and welcome to The Strand. I'm Christina Foxley, the director of events, and I'm pleased to welcome John McMillian and Jesse Kornbluth here tonight to discuss John's new book, Smoking Typewriters, the 60s underground press and the rise of alternative media in America. Um, I know there's a lot of people here who uh, may not know a lot about the underground press, so before I paraphrase uh, the introduction to this book, I want to pass around some actual papers from the 60s. I just brought three. This first one is the Los Angeles Free Press, and it was, you know, it's considered the first underground paper. Uh, it was published in 1960, started in 64. This is from 65. You know, later on, it would become very much associated with the Sunset Strip and hippies and rock and roll. But uh, early on, uh, it was more intellectually minded. It has a kind of flavor of uh, high bohemianism. There's a um, there's an article about ballet. There's uh, references to Yoko Ono. They have a, most underground newspapers had um, calendars of events and they list lectures in psychotherapy and whatnot. So it's sort of a high-minded paper and that later on became more, you know, uh, radical. Um, this is the Berkeley Bar. This is from 67, so it's a little later. Uh, and this paper is a little, you know, groovier. It, it, it reflects sort of the politics of confrontation and the psychedelic movement. It's got some very tasteful art uh, on the back. <laughs> um, you know, most of all, most all of the urban underground newspapers had these uh, sort of back page, you know, ads, which nowadays seem kind of silly, but I think, you know, in the 60s they seemed a little titillating to some readers. And papers like the Barb actually would sometimes have a kind of suburban readership of, you know, men who would swing by. And, you know, some of these ads are not very promising. There's one here that says, "Wanted girl, 18 and up, to cook and clean house for rock band in groovy beach scene pad, free room and board." Uh, another one in Dow Male, middle 30s, seeks healthy, lusty female or couples for passion. Uh, you know, again, nowadays with, with uh, you know, dating sites and social networking, um, maybe these don't raise an eyebrow, but uh, I think they did back then. And then um, 
This last paper is cool. It's The Great Speckled Bird. It's from Atlanta, which is where I live now. And uh, the cover here, it says, Hard Drugs Suck. And I think the idea is that they want people to, you know, maybe continue smoking marijuana, but uh, maybe a little less cocaine or heroin, which is probably good advice for anyone. Any <laughs> I'm going to pass these. You guys can, you know, I, I brought, I, you know, they're allowed to be handled. And then, they're, you know, they're rare, but they're not that rare. You can buy... You can buy an underground newspaper any day of the week on eBay for maybe $15 or $20. So feel free to sort of, uh, browse through those. Um, there's a, there's a, uh, a FBI memo that exists from 1969 where a bureau functionary you know, noticed that these papers were getting a lot of advertising from the record industry, from Capitol Records and Columbia Records. And he said that they should be leaned on or talked to and persuaded to advertise elsewhere. You know, and right around the same time, Rolling Stone magazine had appeared. And, and Rolling Stone, I don't know if you remember, but initially it looked a bit like an underground newspaper. It was, it was on a tabloid folded with serrated edges. And then, you know, the formula there was to celebrate the kind of, you know, hedonistic or uh, you know, apolitical aspects of the youth rebellion. But they were very critical of, of new left militants and the weather underground and the yippies and, and SDS and whatnot. So anyway, they, they tended to, you know, uh, suddenly the bottom dropped out of the ad market for a lot of newspapers and, and, and Rolling Stone did very well. So I am here at The Strand uh, with John McMillan uh, after his event that we just had in honor of his new book, Smoking Typewriters. John, thanks so much for taking a moment to talk with me. Uh, thank you very much. I appreciate it. In your discussion tonight, you said that the content was pretty salacious for the time. You know, a lot of, you know, words that are sort of, you know, commonplace today were considered, you know, sort of scandalous. And so the F word, you know, is something that I think underground press people use kind of deliberately to shock and offend, you know, bourgeois sensibilities. They had these um, crazy underground comics, which I explain in the book were spelled C-O-M-I-X, as if to imply that they were, you know, X-rated or suitable for an adult uh, readership. And then there was, you know, sexism and nudity, especially in the late 60s, images of naked and half-naked women and whatnot. And so it's easy to see how, you know, people from the, you know, larger culture might be offended by this. But, but I point out in the book that it was all constitutionally protected. And, and so the, the Supreme Court holds that it has long, for a long time, has held that in order to be considered legally obscene, the work has to be uh, prurient and it has to uh, front community standards and it has to be utterly without redeeming social or political value. And all this material, in the broadest sense, was social and political. So it all should have been constitutionally protected. But obviously it wasn't. Well, it was, <laughs> it was constitutionally protected, but it didn't stop these papers from you know, being harassed in various ways by the authorities. And tonight, you talked about the extreme confidence of the youth of the 60s. And I was wondering if you could compare the confidence of that generation with the 20-somethings today. Well, the baby boomers were so, I mean, demographically, they were in a, you know, unique and unprecedented situation. They were, the, you know, by far the biggest generation in American history up until that point. Uh, they came of age in a time of just unprecedented, you know, economic prosperity. They had a lot of attention showered upon them, you know, their whole lives. And so some people have theorized that, you know, maybe part of the confidence that they had in the late 60s, you know, resulted from these, these you know, facts. And so, you know, young people today... Uh, you know, you don't see any kind of rising social movement, and I don't see that. I don't see those factors at work. So, I don't think you can make a. I don't. I don't think. I don't think there's a very close comparison. Um, you discussed how we make the mistake of just reading very one-sided 
news sources. What do you read and how do you suggest people get the best coverage possible? What should they read? I mean, it's a phenomenon that other people have coined as uh, epistemological closure and it, it, or informa- information cocoons. It's the idea that people are reading news that only, you know, suits their worldview that doesn't, you know, trouble them or make them uncomfortable. And so, and I'm very concerned about that. So I, I, even in this book, I'm rather critical of the New York Times in some respects for, in the 60s, failing to recognize its sort of mainstream values. Um, uh, but at the same time, I think there's a really important role for a daily newspaper that has people who at least try to be, you know, uh, objective, who, you know, spend a lot of money gathering news all across the world, who have professional editors and publishers who, you know, try to be fair and try to give the right weight to this, you know, to stories and, and it would be nice, you know, it used to be in the 60s, people would disagree a lot, of course, but they were disagreeing about sort of a shared set of facts. And in this new environment, it's too easy for people, whether you're, in the, you're on the right or the left, to, to um, not miss, you miss significant stories. You don't know really what's going on if you read, you know, only the left wing or the right wing press, you know, on the internet. So, so I'm a big fan of the New York Times. I, I, I don't miss it. But then I also read, you know, left wing blogs and, and sometimes, you know, right wing uh, material as well. The Wall Street Journal a lot of the time. Um, I think people should get a, a very news diet. That's, that's my habit anyway. And how do you think the underground newspaper movement has influenced media, specifically the blogosphere today? I wouldn't draw too close of a comparison between what's happening now and, and what happened in the 60s, but it is true that some of the things that the blogosphere is credited with, um, uh, well, these are things that underground newspapers did as well. They, they sort of drew like-minded people together. Uh, they could sometimes, you know, bring attention to issues that the mainstream press was overlooking and force people to pay attention. And they uh, allow for the perspectives of, you know, rank and file or, or citizen journalists, you know, people who don't have a lot of, you know, pedigrees necessarily to get their uh, work printed in the mainstream papers. So, you know, the, the underground press and the, the sort of, you know, blogosphere today, you know, they, they do share those commonalities. Well, thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. I had a really nice time with this whole event. Thanks to The Strand and um, thanks to Oxford University Press for this uh, for this book tour and for publishing it. I, I've had a great time. All right. I am here with Jesse Kornbluth, the editor of headbutler.com. Jesse, thanks for taking the moment to speak with me. Hi. You are a big fan of the blogosphere. Um, you said tonight that political bloggers are amazing. They do amazing things. I had a long and successful career in establishment journalism. I was one of the highest paid writers in the world at Vanity Fair. And I now find that it's much more congenial to read uh, things in the blogosphere that are unfiltered, that uh, are well reported, and uh, that could never be published in uh, a commercial magazine because the advertisers just wouldn't put up with it. And. If you had to compare the blogosphere with the underground press, what would you say? I would say the underground press was run by amateurs. It was run by people who were stoned half the time, and they had a good sense of love, love and peace and harmony. But uh, that's not the way the world actually works. I mean, yes, those are key values. But the people who I'm talking about who write blogs, a lot of them have, they have PhDs. They're experts. They're experts with a point of view, and it's a point of view that isn't so popular in mainstream media, but it's, uh, I, I wouldn't be so quick to say it's wrong. Another thing you said tonight was that it doesn't take long for innocence to get commercialized, and you were speaking about the underground press. Yeah, as I was saying, um, 
you know, within a year of the underground press coming anywhere, you would see uh, ads that say, don't let the man take your music. And it was an ad for CBS Records. I mean, uh, you know, it couldn't be more, you know, hippie, groovy, you know, middle-aged guys with, uh, you know, uh, chains and, 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 and beads. I mean, it's a... The things become a parody of themselves very quickly in this culture. Would you compare it to the hipster movement today? The hipster movement. What is what is the hipster movement today? Well, I mean, uh, guys who wear those uh, little beady caps and uh, have the Jesus beards and don't shave and. Everyone's saying hipster has now become too commercial. It's entered malls in suburban America, so now it is no longer the hipster movement that it was. It's lost its essence. And, you know, it never was. You know, people say, oh, you know, oh, this took off in viral media. No, no, no. Viral media doesn't just happen. Somebody pays for viral media. Uh, you know, in Malcolm Gladwell's book, when suddenly everyone on the east side was wearing hush puppies, how do you think they knew to wear those hush puppies? They were given, the hipsters were given the hush puppies by the hush puppy company. I mean, uh, uh, you know, I think what we've lost now is our sense of naivete, so that when we see even a genuine phenomenon that looks manufactured. <laughs> I just love this idea of like, a hush puppies truck pulling up to McCarran Park in Williamsburg and some guy getting out just being like free shoes for everybody and there's this like crazy hipster riot of people flooding down the street with their free shoes and you get off the L train and it's just like hush puppies everywhere. I think that is the perfect note to end on the image <laughs> of hipsters running down the street in mass chaos. Um, thanks for listening, guys. Uh, once again, please remember to visit us at blog.oup.com till the next episode. Thanks, guys. Words count. Words have meaning.